Thank you guys. Thank you for being here, man. Amen. Hey, got a Bible. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to try to make a three-hour sermon into 30 minutes, maybe. Okay. Uh, nobody laugh, but that's okay. Hey, there's something that's on my heart that I can't shake. And um, those that are, are, uh, followed Richard, and I hope you don't mind me, bro, we, we prayed for you here, but Richard is a cancer survivor and just uh, is in remission. And how many months? Two months. Two months. Um, praise God, yes? Um, and, you know, they are a missionary family. They have missionary hearts. And just like in most aspects of ministry, especially when you are an evangelist or a, a missionary, there's not a lot of money involved. And um, I, I've not talked to him at all about this. This is something that's been on my heart for the last three days, four days, actually. And it's one of those things where you kind of, you know, you just wrestle with it and it can't shake it. And then my, as I've walked with the Lord, when something, when you can't shake something, that's usually the Lord that's it's wanting you to act and, and follow those nudges. Listen, I would like us to take, you know, if, if you would feel led to give a gift to the Rosalinds, to Richard, to, to help them in that. Um, and we don't do this all the time. This is not, this is kind of unorthodox. But if you would, you know, you can go online and just put in the memo of your, you know, just use the general fund and then just put, you know, Richard Rosalind or Rosalind, you know, tag that somehow so that we know and, and we can get any offering. You know, I grew up where we would literally pass the plate on, on kind of things like this. But with the advent of, you know, online giving, we can do that really quick and efficiently. And, and, and we can do that all week long. And so you can either write, you know, use the joy boxes, the offering boxes, or even going online. And, um, but I really feel like we need to bless him. And if you feel led of the Holy Spirit, led of the Lord, just to give whatever the Lord puts on your heart, just to, to help them out, um, that would be a blessing to them, I'm sure. And the word says that if, if you bless like a missionary or evangelist, you will get a reward for that as well. So, you know, that's just uh, not out of obligation, but just if the Lord puts that on your heart, okay? And we'll make sure all those, that special offering goes to him. That's a part and separate from our budgetary support that we give them. Sound cool? You cool with that, bro? You cool with that? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I just, I've been really feeling that of the Lord. And, and so before we get to this, the message, I really want to get that. And we'll send out a message too, just to kind of remind everybody. All right, let's get to the Word of God. Amen? Amen. All right, we've covered up, you know, we're going to continue talking about the power of a godly vision based on the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. You know, we have covered up to the first half of chapter 2, and in the second half of chapter 2, you know, we're not going to read that, but I'll give you a quick overview. We see that Nehemiah had made the long, long journey from the Persian HQ that he was serving in uh, as the wine, you know, the cupbearer, almost second man in charge. Um, and he made that trip all the way from there, all the way down to Jerusalem, a long journey. And then once he arrived there, he kind of waited. And, and, and then three days after his arrival, uh, chapter two shows us that Nehemiah did a little bit of a, a night reconnaissance, okay? And he went around and personally inspected the ruined walls and the burned gates uh, that he came across, this, the situation and how the city of Jerusalem, the state of their walls and gates were. And he did this before telling anybody his vision from the Lord or why he was there. He wanted to personally see with his own eyes the state of the walls and the gates. And then he finally, after those three days and after that night of going around, he finally let the people know, hey, 
This is what God's placed on my heart. This is the vision. This is why I am here to rebuild the walls. And, and the people proclaimed in chapter 2, verse 18, let's go, let's build this thing, Nehemiah. That's the exact Hebrew wording there. They said, let's go, all right? That was their attitude. You know, they were like, all right, yes, we see the need. God has sent you down here. We, we, we believe in your vision. Let's do this. Let's build the wall, okay? And that brings us up to chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. So get comfortable. You might need to get a cup of coffee, all right? There's like 30 verses. I'm sorry to the tech team that had to put these on the screen. You know, it's, it's, it, I think Will was up to like three in the morning putting all these scriptures on there. It's all good. It's a little bit of a, a different text, but you'll understand why we're reading all 32 verses in a few seconds. So if you've got a Bible or Bible app, read along with me, okay? Chapter three of Nehemiah. Then Eliashib, there's gonna be a lot of names here, Hebrew names, so just bear with me, Okay. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and installed its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. I love that sound, the tower of the hundred, okay? And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassaneh built the fish gate. They laid its beams and installed its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabal, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baena, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters." Now Joada, the son of Pasiah and Meshulam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the ancient gate. They laid its beams and installed its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the Euphrates River. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Haariah, yeah, that's a, that's a name right there, of the goldsmith made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, the, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaneah, made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Hiram and Hashab, the son of Path Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters, Hanun and the inhabitants of the Zenoah, repaired the valley gate. They built it and installed its doors with its bolts and bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the dung gate. And Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He built it and installed its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Kolhazah, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, made a roof for it, and installed its doors with its bolts and bars in the wall of the pool of Shelah and the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool in the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Kaila, carried out repairs for his district. 
After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bavai, the son of Henadad, official of the other half of the district of Kaila. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zappai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. And after him, the priests, the men of the vicinity, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. We're almost done. Hang in there. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the towering, or the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the courtyard of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Now the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out the repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters, his own little house. After him, Malachijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple, the servants, and of the merchants in front of the inspection gates, and as far as the upper room of the corner, and between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. Woo! That's one of those where you kind of, it's like you want to skip over real quick, you know what I'm saying? Why do we read all that? What kind of a text is that, Greg? You know, nudge somebody right now, wake them up, okay? You give somebody the old elbow if they're, they've fallen asleep, okay? Let's learn a little American history. Back when the West was being settled, okay, state, you know, a little timbleweed, if you just think that blown by, okay? The major form of transportation was the stagecoach. How many have watched a stagecoach in a, in a movie or a scene or a TV show or you've seen pictures of it, right? Okay. There was even a movie. Thank you, my friend. Do I need that after that whole long chapter? Is that, <coughs> you know? There's a movie back in 1939 starring the Duke John Wayne with that whole name, Stagecoach, okay? But, but I want to point out a fact of stagecoach travel that many people don't really know about and a fact that then it, it really sheds light on kind of how various people are today in the church, all right? What you might not know about that stagecoach travel, it had three different kinds of tickets, three levels of ticketing. We're, I'm going to move this to the front because I think we're getting a little interference. There we are. First class, second class, and third class. How many knew that? No? Okay. I saw one hand. I'm very, very impressed. Okay? If you had a first-class ticket and you're riding on the stagecoach, that means you could be seated during the whole trip no matter what happened. If the stagecoach got stuck in mud, uh, if, if you had trouble making up a hill and, and, and it needed pushing, if a wheel fell off or whatever, you could stay seated in the coach the entire time. If you had a second-class ticket... You could also remain seated 
until there was a problem. In case there was a problem, you had to get out of the stagecoach and just stand there and watch. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to fix anything. You could just stand there. You could probably give your opinion. Hey, I don't know if I'd put that wagon wheel on there like that, pal. You're going to break another axle. You know, or you, uh, if you push it just a little bit this way, buddy, you can get out faster. You could just stand there if you had a second class ticket. But if you had a third class ticket, guess what? You had to do all the work. If you got stuck in mud, you had to be the one that gets out and push the stagecoach. If the wheel fell off, you had to go help assemble the wheel. You had to, if there's any kind of problem, any kind of work that, in, that was needed or you, that had to be done, it was your responsibility holding a third class ticket to do the work, to get out of the stagecoach, get your hands dirty and work. I'm so glad that Flying today is not like that. You know what I mean? Could you just imagine? Hello, everybody. It's your, pa- uh, your I said your pastor speaking. Your pilot speaking. <laughs> We're 10,000 feet in the air, and we got a problem with the wing. Somebody's got to go out there and fix that. And you're like, oh, okay. It's my turn. You suit up, and you go out on the wing. You're all, you know, uh, bolted in, and you have to fix that. Man, praise the Lord. You know, we don't have to do that. <laughs> flying, you know what I'm saying? You might be here watching online and say, Greg, what does all this have to do with Nehemiah and vision? <laughs> what, what, it's all silly, Greg, right? Listen, I'm going to take a slight turn this morning. We've been talking about our personal, you know, visions that God gives us. I want to talk about the team today. And I want to talk about teamwork. There's a lot of believers and Christians who think of themselves as having, if we can use the stagecoach analogy, first-class tickets. They just remain seated. And they watch others do the kingdom work. Hey, Greg, I'm first class, bro. You know, I, I'm just comfortable just sitting and, and, and doing my thing. If there's a problem, if something's going on, I feel like I can just sit, okay? Other Christians think of themselves as having a second class ticket. They remain seated until there's a problem. Then they want to get involved. And, but typically their involvement is just to offer suggestions or how to do the work or to be critical of those doing the work. And then there are Christians who think of themselves as having that third class type of ticket. They work no matter the circumstances. They get their hands dirty. They get involved. We call them participants because they get involved. The first and second class, we call them spectators because they're just watching and not getting involved. Spectators versus participants. Which level do you think God desires us to be? Can you guess? He wants us to be third class, baby. You know what I mean? Third class. I love that. It's way down there, but not up there. No, because we, he wants us to get in there and do the work. He doesn't desire spectators. He desires participants. And so we're in our sixth message in our series. We, we define godly vision. We've talked about the how of vision, you know, what to do in that waiting period between when God births a vision in our heart to when that comes to fulfillment. We've talked about the playbook of vision, the prayer guide of vision. But what good does all that do unless you are ready to get out of the stagecoach, roll up your sleeves, and help? Thinking way back to the very, very first sermon that I preached at my dad's church when I was a teenager, okay? It was approximately 15 minutes long. I know you wish that were still true today, all right? 
but I, I titled it, Get Off the Bus. Get off the bus. And I challenged those in my dad's church in attendance to, to stop letting others in the church, such as the pastors, the church staff, the leaders of the church, stop letting them drive them around like they're riding on a spiritual bus. They need to do some driving themselves. They need to do some work themselves. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. He has rallied the people. He is ready to repair and rebuild and move forward in the vision that God's given him as well as face those challenges that will come, okay? And what I want everybody to really understand is that the walls that they're rebuilding are a symbol of what separates God's people from the culture, It's the walls that they would build. And I've talked about how there's safety in the walls, there's protection in the walls. Well, also spiritually, if you know the Old Testament story, God called a special people to live separately, distinct, and different from the pagan world. So these walls are a symbol of what separates God's people from that pagan culture. And it's a symbol of what distinguishes us, the church, from the world. And the people were ready to do the work. They bought into Nehemiah's vision. Chapter four, verse six of Nehemiah says that the people had a mind to work. And man, I bet every pastor in America prays that for their congregation. Lord, give us a mind to work, to do the kingdom work. Thank you, three, two amens for that support. <laughs> That's awesome, good. So how do you move from spectator to participant, from a bus rider to one who might even be driving the bus, to emphasizing the team and teamwork. Real quickly this morning, I want to talk about four specific ways that can get you, you know, that third class stagecoach rider. A few things that we need to do to get involved in church and, and live out our vision. And we see this in the third chapter. First one is join a team. Join a team. Join a team. And by team, I'm talking about us, the church, okay? The truth is, there is no such thing as the Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger Christian, all right? No believers out there riding silver all on, their lo- all on their own, singing happy trails. I just combined two different Westerns there, okay? <laughs> I know that. Nobody, you don't see that. that that's, that's not biblical. The Lone Ranger Christian just whistling along, seeing what they can do. no. We are together. You need the church. I need the church. We need the church. Tell somebody, say, you need the church. And as a pastor, I am pro-church. Thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? But you were wrong. No. I am (coughs) pro-church. Excuse me, I drink that too fast. Woo, walk it off. Yes, sir. We need the church, you need the church, I do. There's so many people who don't think they need the church. And they're so wrong. I'll quote a friend of mine who's been in ministry for the last few decades, and he once said, the most significant work that is done is through the church. And that's so true. We can get more done together than individually. 
And as we've been talking about visions and burdens that God has placed on your heart and my heart for family, for jobs, for life, for all kinds of things, for missions, for evangelism, for outreach, for your job, for your positions, all that stuff, your vision, plural, visions, should involve and be carried out through and with the church. What do I mean by what, what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Maybe your vision is to see unsaved family members or unsaved loved ones and friends come to Christ. Get them in church. Maybe a vision is to raise godly children and grandchildren. Get them and keep them in church. Oh, so kids. Oh, so students. Right. Maybe your vision is to start a mission project. Get the churches backing. Get the churches covering. We just heard that Rosa testified 16 years walking with them. Maybe you want to become a gospel music star. <laughs> Let the church help and cover you. Maybe you, you have a new invention that God's placed in your heart. You know, have people in the church cover you in prayer. You, know, you want to become a college professor or a college teacher. You know, sharpen your talents by teaching at the church. Maybe you want to start a new business. You know, put God first and obey God's word in your financial giving. We're at the church. See what I'm saying? How does your vision involve the church? By getting involved in every way you can in the church. So many want to think of the church as like this separate identity. I have my life over here and it's beautiful and it's, it's compartmentalized. And then on Sundays I come and I've got my church here for a few hours on Sunday morning. And then when we leave and I'll come back to here and it's like church and life are separate. That's not the way God designed it. You don't see that in the book of Acts. You don't see that in the early church. Church and life meshed together. It's very important. You are the church. What is the church without you, right? I think I put that in a pastor's corner a couple, and, and I, Elizabeth's like, it's so corny. <laughs> she told me on the week during the week, but I love it. And listen, if, if, if you replace you in church with any other letter, like I or A or it, it's church or church or church. Now, my family's from Eastern Kentucky, and that's how they talk, all right? You going to church, Greg? You going to church over there? Okay, but it's not. It's you. You are the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. Christ himself established the church, and gang, the church, you, us, together, is very important. This is not a solo sport. It's a team effort. And the first way to move from spectator to player is by joining the team. Look at our, if we look at our text in chapter three, this chapter lists the team that Nehemiah used to rebuild the wall. Now, upon first reading this chapter, you know, it might appear boring and mundane. It's like, you know, like reading those genealogies and numbers and the chronicles. You're know, like, they got this, they got this. And it's just, you want to skip over that stuff? You know what I'm saying? But as you read this, you should sense excitement. Why? Because you could sense the urgency and the excitement of the people wanting to help and join. What can I do, Nehemiah? What portion of the wall can I work on? What can I build? How can I help? How can I help? And I love that kind of excitement. I love it when we do work days and big, like, big events like the Easter festival because it's, there's such an excitement and an anticipation and everybody's together and we're working and we're doing kingdom work. I'm sure Nehemiah felt the same way. 
And if we look through that list, I mean, there were, there were priests, there were spiritual leaders that got involved, there were out-of-towners that got involved, there, there were goldsmiths and perfumers, talented people in a certain way that got involved. They weren't skilled in wall building, but they're like, hey, what can I do? You might not be able to sing, but you can say, hey, what can I do? Can I work on a computer? Can I volunteer over here? Can I make coffee? Can I greet people? Can I clean the grounds? Can I do? You might not have a, a talent to, to lead a group, but you have a, a God's giving you a beautiful home or a home that you can host a life group in. So many things, right? These skilled people in one ways, they weren't skilled in wall building, but like, hey, I can do this. I'm going to build a wall. There were leaders that were building. There were men and his, a man and his daughters. They, they were building the walls. Two bachelors were building the walls. All kinds of people. It was a glorious sight. In chapter three, we see young, old, sick, poor, married, unmarried, skilled, unskilled, merchants, blue-collar, white-collar men, women, families, different classes of people, all filling their places along the wall. Man, that sounds like uh, how a church should be. People of all backgrounds, vocations, life situations, different demographics, different histories, different backgrounds, all coming together for one glorious purpose to build the walls of protection and separation that causes God's people to be distinct from the world and to further the kingdom work of God. Richard gave a devotional yesterday at the men's breakfast and he brought out the point of what Jesus talks about when he gives the illustration of being attached and connected to the vine. And he did such a beautiful job of, of, of reminding us how a lot of people think of like a tree and there's a single branch. But, it, but if you've ever grown grapes, it's all intertwined and the branches support each other and we're all connected to Jesus. And it was beautiful. And that's exactly what we see here in Nehemiah 3. They're all working together to further the kingdom work of God. That's how the church should be, where we're supporting each other. We're helping each other. We see the need. We hear the need. We know and feel what God wants us to do. And as a church, together, we get our hands dirty. We get out and work. People involved carrying out the work of ministry. And in that work, there's no jealousy. There's no confusion. No one on the team is being critical of the job or the leaders or being hypercritical of each other. No, everyone's working together and that's how God has ordained it to be. The, the team rebuilding of the wall and gates, they were working together in unity. That's how it should be in this team, the church, unity. Remember a song, I think it was the 80s, like, U-N-I-T-Y. You, anybody remember that old song? U-N-I-T-Y. I'm going to bust a move in a minute. That's all right. Unity. Not division, but unity. I mean, in whatever translation you're reading, you probably saw as we read that, next to him, next to them, after him, after them, next, after them. It's, it's used on almost every verse in this chapter. And it shows that they were close working together. Like that vine, like an illustration stays with me, that's intertwined and helping each other, helping each other. B.C. Forbes, who's the founder of Forbes magazine, he is quoted as saying, you spell success, T-E-A-M-W-O-R-K, teamwork. And again, when we cooperate together, when there is teamwork, there's growth both in us personally and around us. Ducks and geese, when they fly south for the weather, okay, are they alone or are they together? They're together in formation, right? 
In fact, it's been said that geese fly 72% farther in formation than flying alone. And God designed them that way. God designed them that way because God wants us working together. In the Bible, when referring to Christians in the church, the phrase one another is used 58 times. And it's as if God is saying, hey, get this message. Help each other. Work together. Being in unity is so important to God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Listen, there's tremendous power in cooperation. Poor facilities, poor organization, poor management, and and, and things like that in the church, they're nothing, nothing compared to disunity in the church of God. God does not like it when his kids in the church bicker, fight, hold grudges, we don't forgive each other, or someone goes to another church because of what someone has done to us and then we hold church hurt, or there are five, 10, 12-year grudges between people in the church, or when we try to manipulate and get back at each other in revengeful ways, or possibly talk about leadership and negative attitudes, critical attitudes, and others behind the back. Or we get unhappy and try to punish by different kinds of means. That is not biblical. There's no place for that in the church. It's a tool that the enemy can use to divide the church. But there's power when the church is in unity. And when we look at the, the church in the early church in the book of Acts, they were together in unity. And the word of God says that daily people were added to the church. It's Acts 2.47. Daily people were added to the church. And so when the church is unified like it was in Acts, then it has the power it had in Acts as well. I love it, man. I'm so thankful for all the lights and the sound and the screens and all the beautiful stuff we have, okay? The awesome buildings and stuff. But when you look at the early church in the book of Acts, man, they they didn't have sound booths and computers and drums and guitars and, you know, beautiful PowerPointed projected lyrics and things like that. You know what they had? They had each other. They had one mind and they were united in the power of the Holy Spirit and people were being added daily to the church. What has happened to us in the 21st century? We get comfortable, we go through the motions, we go through the routine, and God wants more. God wants more. I know this next illustration may be very, very hard for some of you that have lived in this land for a long time to understand, but snow... (laughs) Something that doesn't happen here a lot, I know, right? And I, I, I'm glad because I moved away from that, okay? But snow is a wonderful illustration of what God can do with a bunch of flakes. I'm not calling you flakes. Please understand, you know, don't turn off the stream, okay? <laughs> Each snowflake is very unique. It's different from any other snowflake, okay? And then growing up, I remember when there'd be frost on my window during the wintertime, you could see it. You could see every individual frost flake not the cereal, but, you know, on, on the wind. And it was beautiful, okay? And alone, each snowflake is very frail, melt very quickly. 
But if enough of them stick together, dude, I've seen it stop traffic. I've seen it shut down an entire city, okay? But we, too, we're unique, okay? But alone, I can't do much, and you can't do much alone, okay? But together as a church, we can make a huge difference. Okay, we were meant to live out our visions in cooperation with others as a team. As a team. The Blues Brothers saying, I need you. And that's the truth. We need each other. So join a team. Stop watching, get participating. The second way to, to move from, you know, like the observer's tower to the field or, you know, the, to get that third class to, is to go to work. To move from spectator to participant is to go to work. If you recall, I don't know if you, you mentally highlighted this in verse five of our text, but the, the leaders and the nobles of Tekoa, they didn't work. They thought the work was beneath them. The word says that they didn't put their shoulders or literally their necks to the work. They didn't bear any of the burdens. They might have thought, hey, we're too good for this. We're, we're too good. We're nobles. We're leaders. We're too good for wall building. Maybe they had delicate hands. They didn't want to get their hands dirty. Maybe they didn't believe in the vision. They didn't think the walls could even be, get rebuilt. Whatever the reason, they just didn't lend a hand. These are like those first-class ticket holders in a stagecoach. Matthew Henry's unabridged commentary describes these guys like this. They would not come under the yoke of an obligation to this service. And I fear that when it comes to the church and team and the teamwork, a lot of people in the church fear commitment because in their eyes, they, they look at it as, a, as an obligation. They don't want to be obligated to do anything, so they just don't commit. What, you know, me sign up for that? Put my name down on a piece of paper? No way. I'm not going to be obligated to that. If I commit and I can't keep my commitment, what are they going to think of me? You know, so I'm just not going to commit at all. I'm not going to volunteer. No way. No, man, Listen. Obligate yourself to God and then get committed to his work. Our obligation is to the Lord and then we, we commit to his work. And serving in kingdom work and serving in the church, gang, it is not out of obligation. It's gotta be out of heart and will and part of that teamwork and unity because God wants workers he wants people getting their hands dirty in the kingdom work. And I promise you, you will not find true satisfaction in any other pursuit. But just like the, the priest in the Old Testament, God will take care of you when you serve, when you work, okay? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, we are all different members of one body. And he writes that if one part suffers, guess what? We all will suffer. There's an old... Major League Baseball player, he's a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher, Dizzy Dean, and uh, his career ended when his toe was hit with a line drive, and, and the injury ruined his throwing motion because as he came off the rubber to pitch, he had to, to compensate by turning his foot the wrong way because it hurt his toe so much. And consequently, that led him to overextending his arm, which eventually ruined it for pitching, and this Hall of Fame pitcher's career ended because of his toe. Because of his toe, a little toe, all right? His whole body suffered. His whole career suffered because of that one little bit. Listen, when others don't work, then others have to pick up what the don'ts 
have not done. Does that make sense? There's a crazy stat that's so true in church work. It's like 20% of people do the work of the church. And they have to compensate for the rest of the 80%. And that's so true. And so ask yourself this morning, am I in the 20% or am I in the 80%, okay? Join the team. Get to work. There's so many areas to serve in this church, in this team, with really little commitment. Don't fear obligation. I'm gonna, it's a lifetime sentence, Greg, if I volunteer for that. No, it's, that's not what it is. No, 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 no. You can serve and say, I need to take a break, and that happens. We say, God bless you. Let us know when you're ready to come back in and serve some more. But join the team, get to work. The third aspect, the last two are really, really quick. And Jake, if you'd be ready to come up. Third aspect is then to do your part, to move from spectator to participant. Not only join the team, get to work, but then do your part. Everyone rebuilding the walls and gates in Nehemiah 3 were doing their parts, and together the wall got rebuilt in 52 days. And it's like, it was like, it, it was like 20-something miles of wall. And they got it built in 52 days. Listen, more could get done if they sectioned it off and they worked at it together. The walls and gates, it wasn't just a backyard fence, man. It was long, over 20 miles long, too much for just a few men. But together, taking it in sections and assigned portions, the part, you know, the, the wall was built miraculously. It was awesome. There's a preacher who once asked, how do you eat an elephant? Anybody know that answer? Yeah. Who, where'd that even come from? I don't know. Is that true? I mean, that, you know, who eats elephants? <laughs> but that, yeah, it, it was one bite at a time. Listen, there's so much kingdom work that one man or one woman cannot do it all. We all got to do our part. And together we can get her done, all right? And, and the final way to move from observer to participant is to take ownership. It's to take ownership. And this one's so very important. For things to get done successfully, people, people have to have a healthy pride in it. Nobody likes to work and spend effort on things they don't believe in, trust in, or have a vision or have a personal interest in. Don't believe me? Then what if I said, hey, this next week as an outreach gang, uh, we're, we're going to go find the local drug dealer and we're going to help him give his drugs out. Or we're going to volunteer, all of us are going to volunteer at an abortion clinic. I don't think many of you would show up, at least I hope not, huh. hope not at all. But you wouldn't do that because you don't believe in that. And you're, you're against that, okay? Look at the leadership of Nehemiah. For many of the workers, he assigned work in areas that were very close to their houses. Assigned in places that where they were personally interested in it. That way they could own it, they could take pride in it, they could give it their best work. When, when, when Meg and I were youth pastors, we always wanted our students to help, you know, decorate the walls and give input and all the stuff. And we wanted them to have a say in what their area looked like because we knew that then they would stick around because they owned the room. And it's true, when you take ownership in something, you're going to work a little harder. You're going to put a little more effort into it. That's what we see with this team that Nehemiah assembled. They were personally attached to the project, and they worked diligently. 
One, one guy says he worked zealously. I mean, he was going at the wall, man. He was just really building it. The truth is you will stay more committed when you have invested your time, your talents, and your treasure. And that's so true when it comes to church. And I've talked about these things before, but it's, it's always a good reminder. The three T's, time, talents, and treasure. It says also as leadership, how we gauge who's really with us. As a pastor, man, I'm, I'm given the call. Don't be like the leaders in verse five and not commit. No, take ownership. This is your church. Become a, a formal member. I'll talk to you about it. Give, support. Find out where you can serve, what you can do. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, wherever your treasure is, your heart and your thoughts would be there also. So join the team. Get to work. Do your part. Take ownership. You will be amazed at the blessings you'll receive, what will get done, and how we will grow and how you'll grow as well. But here's the beauty. Unless you leave thinking, oh, Greg's just talking about work, 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 work. No, 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 listen. God wants to work in team with us. Do you know how? In a personal relationship. He sent his son to die on the cross, bridging that gap of separation that was caused due to our sin. He loves us. He wants us. He's constantly calling out to us, walk with me. Let me strengthen you. Let me help you. Follow me. And I ask online in here, have you joined his team? Have you made Christ your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted what he's done for you on the cross? Have you decided to follow him? If not, what are you waiting for? Do it today. Come talk to me after the church. I'll pray with you. You can pray right in your service. But he wants you to grow. He's, he, doesn't, he loves you too much to leave you in the same condition. He wants you to grow and move from that just observer, spectator to participating in the team in his kingdom work. God, touch our hearts. Let us be like the people in Nehemiah 3 and get to work building the kingdom of Christ. Lord, touch us today and help us, I pray. We need you. Move on our hearts. Speak to every heart individually, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Jake, let's sing this one last song before we're dismissed. And I'm praying that God just moves on our heart, touches us. Thank you, God.